Jeff, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, the technical things are just being sorted out. If you'd like to come up and join us. Jeff will speak for a while, then there'll be opportunity for questions. And so do stockpile those questions and we'll feed as many as we can do. Jeff, it's a great pleasure to have you here tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I can't say most of you are strangers. I know most of you by name, I think. So I feel, uh, you know, talking to friends. Um, but for those of you that don't know me, I'm Jeff Halper, and I'm the head of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, which is an Israeli uh, peace and, and human rights organization that's dedicated to um, ending the Israeli occupation. We're a big picture kind of a group. We use the issue of house demolitions as our focal point, as our, as our vehicle for getting at the occupation, showing people how it works, showing people the human cost of the occupation. Um, <clears throat> and I'll show you some pictures in, in, in a couple minutes of demolitions because each demolition is sort of a microcosm of the occupation. And each demolition raises the questions, why are they demolishing this family's home? And house demolitions is a very important uh, part of what we call reframing the conflict. You know, it, does, it doesn't make any sense to get into an argument with somebody. Is there terrorism? Isn't there terrorism? The minute you start the discussion with terrorism, it, it becomes pointless. Not that, there, that, that terrorism or attacks or whatever you want to call it isn't a part of the equation. And at some point it should be dealt with. But from our point of view, it's a symptom. And to start with that, and that's what Israel always tries to do, to start with that immediately makes Israel the victim. It puts all the burden on the other side that's, of course, terrorists. And we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And it just creates this dichotomy that's completely counterproductive, simplistic, and which distorts. But, and it's also a motive. It's emotional because, you know, once you say terrorism, what are you going to say? You know, it's, I, I, so what we, what we want to do is to reframe the conflict because, in fact, a, almost nothing that Israel does in the occupied territories, almost none of its policies have anything to do with security. In other words, uh, the occupation exists because, you know, Israel denies even that it has an occupation. So that, again, if you can start a discussion with terrorism and there's an occupation never enters into the equation, then it simply becomes a clash of civilizations equation. You know, the civilizations against the others, and, and we know that discussion. So that there is an occupation, and the occupation is proactive. And that's where the house demolition comes in, the house demolition issue comes in. Because Israel has demolished about 27,000 Palestinian homes in the occupied territory since 1967. And in almost no cases was it a case of security. In other words, the knee-jerk reaction, because this is what you understand from the way Israel presents the situation as well, these must have been homes of terrorists. 
And if they're homes of terrorists, well, then we don't have to feel quite as bad about it as, uh, of course, the families are being punished, but, well, they're terrorists. But it's simply not true. In almost no cases, in about, well, in about 600 of the 27,000 cases, you could make a case that, that there was a security element involved. But Israel demolished homes for two reasons. I'll show you in, in, in a couple minutes. One is um, in military operations. And houses are demolished as collateral damage. They're not targeted. They're simply in the way. So in the last Gaza invasion at the end of 2008, at the end of 2008, um, in those three weeks when Israel had invaded Gaza, about 8,000 Palestinian homes were demolished. And again, as collateral damage. If you look at films of the invasion, you'll see a column going into Gaza, and the column is led by a bulldozer. Followed by, and this is a Caterpillar D9 bulldozer. These are huge mining equipment type bulldozers that are specially designed to demolish homes. The shovels are designed in a way that when they hit a building, it falls away from the driver. I mean, there, there's only one purpose for these bulldozers, and that's to destroy uh, Palestinian homes and buildings. So it's a tank, it's a bulldozer followed by a tank, followed by a bulldozer, followed by a tank, and so on. The bulldozers clear the way. And clearing the way in a crowded refugee camp or in a city like Gaza City means simply taking out all the houses on the way. Uh, or, you know, uh, it, um, communities are attacked from the air, uh, with drones and with uh, Apache helicopters and missiles, artillery, you know, shoots into, into Gaza, all of which destroys property. So you get thousands of homes demolished in which the people didn't do anything that, that are living in the home. They're simply, again, collateral damage. Or the other reason is that Israel has a policy, and it's a declared stated policy, it isn't the secret, of not granting building permits to Palestinians in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem. Simply don't give. A few are given, because if you closed it completely, it's like a lottery. You know, you maybe buy a lottery ticket. You know you're not going to win. But you know that one millionth of a chance is enough that people spend millions to buy, uh, to buy lottery tickets. So if you couldn't get any building permits at all, the whole system wouldn't work. Last year in the West Bank, the West Bank has 2.5 million Palestinians. Israel granted 18 building permits, which is exactly on the scale of a lottery. But you, you play the game because you're desperate and you think, maybe I can do it. And then, of course, and I know this from experience, uh, they'll play the good cop, bad cop with you. If you apply, you know what, you'll probably get it. Um, you know, there's all kinds of psychological games played with Palestinians. At any rate, uh, virtually no building permits are issued. So that um, there are tens of thousands 
of so-called illegal homes that Palestinians build. In East Jerusalem alone, if you've ever been there, it's not a big city, um, there are about uh, close to 20,000 demolition orders outstanding today. Uh, we don't know exactly the figures for the West Bank, but we assume it's much larger than that. So that, that's the, so that house demolitions have nothing to do with security. So one of the questions that I'll show you in a second when a house is being demolished is, well, why are they demolishing this family's house? And the explanation that you would get from, from Israel or from its spokespeople doesn't explain that. Because the only explanation they'll give you is security. There's a security reason. Or there's terrorists. But no, that's simply not the case. And I'll show you the pictures in a second. These are simply families living on their own land. I mean, they're not like invading public lands or trying to block settlements. Or They're simply living in their own lands, want to build a, uh, a modest home, and are refused building permits, and, and then get demolished. So that the house demolition issue is a very powerful one for reframing because it raises these questions. What are Israel's intentions? I mean, if it is demolishing these homes, why? I mean, what's the, what's the, I mean, it's not punishment because they haven't done anything. And in fact, I'll show you also in the pictures, the people are never arrested. I mean, if they were terrorists or if there was a security element or if they had done something wrong, they wouldn't be wandering around on the, on the ruins of their home after they're demolished. In other words, they haven't been charged with anything. It's not that they're, that they're criminals. Or, 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 so then the question is, not only why are they demolishing that, that house, but what's behind it? What's the intention? Where is Israel going with this? And uh, these are very important questions, that, and it leads us into an analysis of where indeed Israel is going and what the problem is uh, and, uh, and maybe how to get out of this conflict. One of the things that's very evident is that it's not a conflict in the sense that a conflict means you have two sides. And we love to talk about two sides. Two sides, you know, both sides should talk, both sides should negotiate, both sides should end the violence, both sides this, both. There aren't two sides. There's no two sides. There's one side, if you want to put it that way, um, that's a state, a part of the United Nations, uh, has tremendous business dealings with Britain. Since 1983, is, is a strategic ally of the United States by treaty. Has a huge economy. The Israeli economy is three times larger than Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon put together. Um... It's the fourth largest nuclear power in the world. And as much as we're concerned about Iran, that doesn't have nuclear weapons, Israel has never signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, refuses to allow international inspections, and in fact is a country that has threatened its neighbors with nuclear attack. It has one of the largest armies in the world. Um, according to the military index, it's the 10th largest army in the world and could probably pull up a pretty good fight with Britain. 
It's got many more, uh, much more military equipment actually than Britain has, except for ships. And it's the occupying power. There's only one occupying power. The Palestinians aren't occupying Tel Aviv. So if you put all that together, you have a situation of one people, one state, oppressing the other. And if you put that power dimension into it, you don't have, a conflict assumes two, there, aren't, there isn't a conflict. There's an occupation. There's an oppression of one people over another. It's asymmetrical. And therefore, and therefore, um, you know, and therefore, in order to deal with it, you can't adopt a, two, a, a balanced, both peoples have to do this kind of a thing approach. The problem is Israel. The problem is Israel. It isn't to let the Palestinians off the hook. They can't do anything they want either. But nevertheless, nevertheless, the problem is with the occupying power, the strong power, the oppressing power. And that, and that is where our analysis goes. And anything that doesn't allow that, and then of course the Israeli discourse doesn't, and framing doesn't allow that, and it reflects in European governments. And Britain will never criticize Israel without somehow finding a way to criticize the Palestinians too. You know, and that's counterproductive. Because unless you can really understand what, what the problem is and where it's coming from, you're never going to solve it. So in our reframing, we say there is an occupation. The occupation is proactive, as I said. It's a proactive claim to the entire country. That's what house demolitions is. You can't explain any policy that Israel has almost by security. You can't explain the building of 200 settlements by security. And in fact, Israel has never invoked security as a reason for building settlements. This is a proactive claim to Judea and Samaria and, and East Jerusalem. You can't explain the declaration of 72% of the West Bank as Israeli state land. 72% of the West Bank is Israeli state land because Israel refuses to recognize the deeds of Palestinians, even if they go back hundreds of years. You can't explain the crazy route of the wall by security. And in fact, the wall has nothing to do with security, even though that's the way it's sold. The official name of the wall is not the security barrier, it's the separation barrier. That's the official name. And the point is to separate Israelis and Palestinians partly by incorporating huge settlement blocks into Israel. You can't explain the uprooting and destruction of two million olive and fruit trees since the occupation began. That has nothing to do with security. You can't explain the economic closure that has impoverished the Palestinians when in fact the closure was imposed at the beginning of the Oslo peace process. At the same time that Israel is saying there has to be economic benefits to the peace process, otherwise nobody's going to believe that it's real, in order to build trust and so on, Israel imposed a closure. During the first intifada there was no closure. 
Palestinians could take their kids to the beach in Tel Aviv. They could work in Tel Aviv. They had free access to the entire country. The first intifada might have been a time in which you were worried about security. But no, there was no closure. The closure began with the start of the Oslo peace process. There was no particular spike in terrorism. But that, on the contrary, you're going into a peace process. And the Palestinians have been impoverished ever since. 70% of the Palestinians live on about a pound a day, pound and a half a day. And they're fed by the international community. There's no economy. Uh, uh, there's no access to the Israeli job market. And this was on the, back, on the background of Israel de-developing Palestine between 1967 and 1993 not allowing any banks to open, destroying the agricultural sectors, which goes on until today, not allowing uh, business people to export and import goods, uh, withholding all kinds of tax monies and so on. So the, the, the impoverishment of Palestine today is the result of a deliberate policy. There is no reason why there has to be a housing shortage, why Palestinians can't have an agricultural economy, why businesses can't function, why people are living impoverished. There's no reason for it. It's all induced. It's all created with the purpose of either driving Palestinians out of the country, especially the middle classes. That's what's important because you can, uh, you can keep the masses of people, the working people, the poor people, in check. They're very malleable. If you can take away from them their leaders, their economic leaders, their community leaders, their political leaders. So by creating a situation that's completely untenable economically, middle class, middle class people can't hold on like, like poor people can. Poor people can go back and they can... They can scratch around and grow in their gardens food, and they got a couple chickens, and they share, and, and, and they can do that. Even though it's forbidden, it's illegal to plant a garden next to your home without the permission of the Israeli military government. There's a military order, I think it's Order 818, if I'm not mistaken, out of about 2,000 military orders uh, by which the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem, and well, the West Bank mainly are run, that, that, uh, that uh, uh, prescribes how many flowers you can have in flower pots around your home and what kinds of flowers. I mean, the degree of control a Kafkaesque under, understates the case. The degree of control is, is, is incredible in Palestinian life. So that, so that middle class people, you know, they're more educated, think about the future, think about their kids' future, they can't hunker down. When middle class people know that their kids are not going to get an education, they're not going to have a job in the future, not, they leave. And they have the wherewithal to leave. So it's what we call the quiet transfer. It's estimated that about 300,000 Palestinians have left the occupied territories in the last 10, 12 years. 
something like that, the vast majority being the middle classes. So it's an economic warfare, and it's designed to, to... So in other words, either to get Palestinians out of the country is the policy of, of, uh, that I've been talking about, or to confine them to these little areas A and B. Um, kind of little, uh, little Bantu stands, uh, little enclaves. So this is the policy, and uh, we can talk about where it's going, but what I want to do first of all is show you just, uh, I won't go through the whole story of house demolitions, partly because some of you have, have seen it before, but I do want to, ah, and I sh should have my, I don't, all right, I don't have my, my pointer with me. I do, but I'm not going to go monkey around with it now. Is there like, somebody have a cane? I often, I often do that. I get a crutch, a cane, something, a pointer. Professors can't talk without pointers and chalk. You have to understand. All right, at any rate. Um, almost. Now, the old umbrella would have worked. Here, here. Here, Garth comes up, came up with it. This is hot low tech. All right, okay. I do have a laser pointer, but all right. And it also helps me control who's going to ask questions and and if they're not good questions. This is a Shawamri family. Just to give one example of a, of a family, because Salim has been here. He's been here in Amos Trust, and he's spoken. The family, Salim, his wife, Arabia, and their seven children. They're not all in the picture. Uh, seven children who um, a, simply, we actually, were living in Saudi Arabia. Salim and his, and his wife are both, their families are refugees from inside Israel in 1948. And uh, uh, Arabia's family went to Jordan. Salim's family went to the old city where he was born of Jerusalem and then moved to the Shuafat refugee camp, which isn't, isn't far from the old city, uh, where Salim was born. Uh, um, when they got married, they went to Saudi Arabia. Because Salim is an engineer, a construction engineer. Had a, you know, made a little nest egg. And when the Oslo peace process began, like thousands of other Palestinians decided to go home and help build their country. Believing that, you know, the peace process was going to happen. And in fact, one of the first things that Shimon Peres said when the peace process began in 1993 was we're going to stop demolishing homes. That was one of the first things that was said. So Salim came back with his wife, Arabia. They bought a little piece of land very close to the refugee camp where, uh, where he was born, where his family, his parents were there, his brothers and sisters and so on. They bought a piece of land, but they still had to apply to the Israeli authorities for a building permit. They applied three times. And each time they were turned down. And each time it cost them 5,000 American dollars to apply. 
So each time they were turned down for a different reason, the main reason being, and this is how Israel uh, refuses all, see, Israel has a problem. Uh, it tries to present itself as a Western democracy. Indeed, the only democracy in the Middle East, right? You've heard that a billion times. So how do you then pro pro prohibit Palestinians from building? How do you discriminate in building without endangering your democratic image? So it's done in a very sophisticated way. I won't get into everything, but basically zoning and planning. Boring, gray, dull, technical mechanisms that are so boring that they never get into the newspaper. People don't even want to hear about it. It's, it's so complex. Essentially, the entire West Bank has been zoned as agricultural land. And here, the British have a certain role because the plan that Israel, that the plan un, that's valid until today, we're in 2012, upon which Israel uh, uh, is supposed to grant building permits, upon which planning is based and building permits, is based on a 1942 British mandate zoning plan. 1942, the British zoned almost the entire West Bank as agricultural land. So this is now, uh, what are we talking about, 70 years ago? So the idea was, it wasn't against the Palestinian people. The idea was, you know, the British had a very romantic, biblical, first of all, concept of the country, and they wanted to keep the rolling hills and the biblical landscape, which has largely been destroyed today, they wanted to retain that and to prevent urban sprawl. So they wanted the Palestinians to build in more compact villages, leaving the rural areas free, both for agriculture and for the, the landscape and so on. It wasn't a plan meant against the Palestinian people. It was simply, you know, the British, wherever they went, among other things, like to make a little bit of order and aesthetics and so on. So that was the idea. But let's say the British had stayed on for another 50, 60 years. The plans would have been adjusted as the population grew. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't a mechanism to be used against the people. Well, Israel inherited that plan. So boom. And, you know, in international law, that we don't follow, but nevertheless, in international law, the Fort Geneva Convention and international law in general says that an occupying power is not supposed to impose its legal system on an occupied territory. All right, great. Here we have a 1942 plan that freezes Palestinian building in 1942. Great, and so we simply adopted that whole cloth and that is the basis of Israeli planning today. So when a fellow like Salim comes and says, I'd like to build on, on land that I bought, because you can buy land, the answer is, geez, you know, we'd like to help you out, but this is agricultural land. Even though the vast part of the West Bank is, in fact, desert. This is in the Judean desert. Nevertheless, that's, that's the idea. And in East Jerusalem, it's the same thing. There was also a British plan from 1942 for Jerusalem 
that did the same thing, except in Jerusalem, they added in 1967 another element, and that is that all of East Jerusalem that was taken, the Palestinian part of the city, was declared open green space. In other words, every city does that. I'm sure London does that. You take a city takes one, two, three percent of its urban space, and it sets it aside for future urban development. Well, Israel took a hundred percent of the Palestinian part of Jerusalem and reserved it for future development, not Palestinian development. So you say, well, wait a minute. If Salim can't build in this land, how did you build 200 settlements? How did you move a half a million Israelis into the West Bank and into East Jerusalem? Well, the answer is, of course, that we sit on the planning commissions. And to, re and to rezone from agricultural land to residential takes you a second if you want to do it. And therefore, all the land that the settlements are built on uh, has been uh, declared state land and, uh, and, and residential land, so you can build, or in East Jerusalem as well, whereas for the Palestinians it doesn't work. It's what's called partisan planning, which is a nice term for it. Okay. So finally, Salim and Arabia built a small house for their family. I'm not going through the whole story, but uh, they built a home for their family, like thousands, tens of thousands of other Palestinian families, got a demolition order, lived in their home for five years, and then one day in July of 1998, the bulldozer showed up and the home was, was demolished for the first time. Uh, this is Salim on the day of the demolition. Uh, in the attack on the house, because it's a very violent action demolishing a home. I mean, families resist. The kids are there, the army comes, there's tear gas, there's shooting. On this day, a Palestinian kid lost a good part of his stomach and part of his kidney that day, shot with a, with a rubber bullet. Uh, Arabia uh, tried to slam the door shut, and the soldiers threw tear gas into the house. And she was taken out unconscious. We get into the act <laughs> as Israeli activists. This is uh, one of the, I don't know how many times I've been arrested. But as Israeli Jews, we have a privileged position. They're not going to put us in jail. They'll detain us for a couple hours and let us go. They're not going to beat us up. They're not going to shoot us. So we get in front of bulldozers. That's why I'm built this way. They hired me. I wasn't hired for my mind. We get in front of bulldozers, we chain ourselves in, inside homes, we get on the roofs of homes, whatever we can do to resist and to buy time because our activists are calling journalists, they're calling diplomats to come. And if we can make a commotion, you know, they've come to demolish 10, 15 houses. Um, but if after one or two, we can make enough of a commotion becomes public enough, they'll, they'll retreat which means we might be able to save five, six, seven houses in that way. But we can do that. If Salim would get in front of a bulldozer, they'd shoot him, period. There's no questions asked. But because we're Israelis, we exploit our privileged position to resist in ways that Palestinians can. 
and the home is demolished. This is another caterpillar bulldozer, as you can see, or a, actually a pneumatic drill. Salim and Arabia's home was demolished five times. It was demolished and we rebuilt it. We rebuild, okay, as, um, as uh, political acts of resistance, not humanitarian. We're against mixing humanitarian with, we're not doing this because, you know, we're helping these, we're good liberal people helping these poor Palestinians get a house. The point is, this is political resistance to a political policy of demolishing homes. We rebuilt the home five times. And uh, this was the last house. It was built in 2003. And on the house, we did a mural. And the mural was, <clears throat> you see a dead caterpillar bulldozer amidst a pile of dead armaments. Um, it's hard to see, but <clears throat> there's workers. You see the red flags. Israeli and, uh, and, and, and Palestinian workers and international workers together, the idea being that there were times in which the workers, especially before 1948, uh, Jewish and Arab workers worked together. They built the railroad system in Palestine. They built the port system. I mean, there was a lot. They were, they were in, in, uh, uh, they were in uh, uh, industries together. Even in the British mandate administration, you had Jewish and Arab police Police people, you had them in the and uh, in, in administrative positions. There was a, we, in other words, this whole idea that somehow we're enemies, and we've always been enemies. That book by Jean, Joan Peters or Jean Peters from time immemorial. It simply wasn't true. I mean, 50, 60, you know, 60, 70 years ago, it wasn't true, and that's a reminder of that. And over the scene are the forms of two women who died in house demolitions. One of them, and the woman on the left, the green figure, is Rachel Corey, whose name I'm sure you know. It was a play done here in Britain and so on. Uh, Rachel Corey was an American college student who was killed in Gaza, uh, when defending a home of a Palestinian that was going to be bulldozed and was run over by the bulldozer twice. And the other woman is another woman from Gaza, a Palestinian woman named Nuha Swedan, who is the pregnant mother of 10 children, who was killed in her house at night when, when the home was demolished on top of them as they were sleeping at night. So the, the figures of these women kind of hover over the site. And this was Beit Arabiya. Now, the family couldn't live in the house. There's always a, even if you have a house, you don't have a house. There's always a catch. Because Salim and Arabia had Jerusalem residency. They lived in Jerusalem. And uh, Palestinians do not have Israeli citizenship. Palestinians in East Jerusalem. They're permanent residents. Which means that they have to prove constantly to the Ministry of Interior that the center of their life is Jerusalem. They have to live in Jerusalem. Their kids have to go to school in Jerusalem. They have to pay telephone and electricity bills from Jerusalem. The problem being, of course, that Jerusalem is very expensive for Palestinians because of the house demolition policy. You know, the Jerusalem municipality itself admits there are 25,000 housing units 
lacking in the Palestinian sector because Israel won't allow Palestinians to build legally. And therefore, the, the, the demand is much higher than the supply. So, and, Pal and again, 70% of the Palestinians live under the poverty line. So they can't afford the housing. So what happens is they go outside the Jerusalem boundaries to get affordable housing in, in what are now West Bank communities outside. And when they do that, they lose a Jerusalem residency. And that's one way in which Israel keeps the demographic balance of Jewish domination in Jerusalem. The official Israeli position, the official Israeli policy, it's written down, is to maintain a 72-28% majority of Jews over Arabs in Jerusalem. That's racist. That's just simply racist. If there was a policy, and I'm sure... There are people here that would like that kind of a policy with different groups. But if you came out and said that, it would be racist. To privilege one group over another group in a, in a so-called democracy is racist. But that is the Israeli position. And, um, and if you ask Israelis about it, they say, well, of course. Jerusalem was our ancient capital. We're reclaiming the city. It's a good thing. That Jerusalem is being Judaized. That's the word we use. What's, I mean, what's wrong with that? Why shouldn't Jerusalem be a Jewish city? That's the whole point of Zionism, is to Judaize the country, Judaize Jerusalem, to take it back, so that Israelis, as much as they're proud of their democracy, don't see any problem in terms of Judaizing Jerusalem. Well, the problem then is, of course, that um, Palestinians have to hide the fact that they've moved outside the Jerusalem borders. They try to fudge it. So there's a special department. I mean, it goes on and on and on. A special department in the Ministry of Interior that comes to check if a Palestinian whose address is East Jerusalem is genuinely living in East Jerusalem. They come and they go into the house and look, are your children's clothes there? Show me a phone bill that you paid from this address. And if they find out you've moved, it's fictitious in a sense, and you moved outside, you lose your residency. Something like 60,000 Palestinians have lost their residency in Jerusalem. And that was the case of Salim. When they bought the land, you didn't have uh, so much area A, B, C. This is before Oslo, pretty much. And it was much looser. So they, they bought the land and they built the house, but Salim became so well-known over the course of the demolitions of his home that he couldn't fudge it. And he almost lost his residency. So he's, he and his wife are forced to rent a home in Jerusalem, even though for nine years we had this house that we call Beit Arabia. And since the family couldn't live in the house, we used it as a, a kind of a strategizing center. Many groups, many of you have come. Groups came and got briefings and met with Salim and Arabia. Uh, different Israeli and political and international groups would come and meet in Beit Arabia. It was really a very valuable strategizing center, a kind of a peace center uh, that we had, that the family was very engaged in. Five demolitions, the last one being on this January 23rd. So we're talking just about a couple months ago. A couple months ago, 
January 23rd, in the mountains, it was a very cold night. Cold, rainy night. The army came at 11.30 at night. And not only to Beit Arabiya, they demolished eight Bedouin houses that night. And the home of another family that we had built for um, that had 17 children. And they came to that house. That was the last house they demolished that night at 3.30 in the morning. So imagine 3.30 in the morning on a rainy, cold winter night to rouse 20-some people from their beds, throw them out, demolish their home, and leave. And that's exactly what happened. These are the soldiers, because we were called, you know, Salim found out, we, we were called out in the middle of the night. These are the soldiers that came to demolish. This is me and a few of the Palestinians looking at Beit Arabiya. That was the first home to be demolished that night, again, for the fifth time. The next day, the family found all their, you know, this is it in, again, in the rain. So almost all their stuff was ruined. Um, you know, and the next day, they, in the, sort of partly at night, but mainly in the next day, they came out and they tried to find whatever furnishings. Here's Arabia to find whatever, other, whatever furnishings they could to try to reclaim something. This was Beit Arabiya before the demolition. You know, it was, we had, we had, you can sort of see here, we had a memorial for Rachel Corey and Nuha Suidan, the house itself. Salim planted a lot of trees, about 52 trees he planted around. Uh, here's the mural that I talked about. After the demolition, we found pieces of the mural around in different, in different places. We sort of collected the pieces and we want to try to kind of put it together. Ironically, this part of the mural shows, it's not very clear maybe, but it shows a, um, one of the clerks of the civil administration, which is Israel's military government, walking around with a map and trying to decide what houses to demolish. That was a part of the mural that kind of survived. This was something, this was a, when the first home was demolished and rebuilt, uh, one of, uh, an Israeli woman made this out of parchment and we put it up in the first house that had been rebuilt in Arabic, Hebrew, and, and English, it says House of Peace. This House of Peace was built by the joint effort of Israeli and Palestinian people of peace. Um, um, uh, the building, okay, thanks. Yeah, I'm a little too. Building was completed on July 8th, 1999. And in all the subsequent demolitions, including the last one, we searched through and we found this piece of parchment. And it was all broken, the frame was, but we still, we still have that parchment and we're, we're going to rebuild the home this summer in July for the fifth time. And, uh, and, the, and this parchment will go up again. And the houses, like I said, are completely demolished. 
Now here's Salim in front of the house that was demolished last January. I mean, they really demolished everything. I mean, the, the, not only the house, but the floors and the, and the foundations and took out all the trees. I mean, really just absolutely made it a, a desolate spot. It's one thing here, if we're looking at this picture, just to, to mention is that, <clears throat> this isn't, uh, you see this wall here? That's not the wall. They're surrounded by two walls. The wall, the wall, the, what we call the apartheid wall, that Israel calls the separation barrier. It's a 26-foot it's a concrete wall, which means it's more than twice as high as the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was, uh, was um, 12 feet high. Was 12 feet high. This is 26 feet high. And it's five times longer than the Berlin Wall was. But, and it goes all around uh, Anata, but it's behind, we're sort of on the hillside. You don't see it because it's tucked into the hillside. You don't see it. But what you do see here is another wall. Because Israel is building what we call apartheid highways. In other words, separate road systems for Israelis and Palestinians. Now, instead of building two separate road systems, what Israel is doing is building roads with a wall down the center. So on one side of the road, you'll have Palestinian traffic, and it goes off to Palestinian communities. And on the other side of the wall, you'll have Israeli traffic going off uh, to Israeli communities. There's a degree of separation. Everyone that knows the apartheid system, I just came back from South Africa, um, says that the degree of separation here is much greater than the degree of separation that you had in South Africa. And certainly the degree of violence is much higher than it was in South Africa. South Africa, you didn't have uh, F-16s and Apache helicopters attacking Soweto. So this is sort of a super apartheid. I think it even goes beyond apartheid. <clears throat> so here, maybe I'll just take a, a couple, should I take a couple minutes and do a little political or should I leave it at that? All right. Hmm? Okay, all right. Uh, I mean, basically, this is a map of the two-state solution, what we call the two-state solution, because all this has a political context to it. That's what I just want to touch on for a minute. And the two-state solution, I mean, sounds good on paper. There's two peoples living in this country. Uh, the Jews call it Israel, the land of Israel. The Palestinians call it Palestine. Religious people call it the Holy Land. Whatever you call it, it's really one country between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. All these uh, borders are temporary and, and don't mean anything really. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in this one country today, half the population is Palestinian. Half the population. Without any of the four and a half million refugees that live around coming back. So if any of the refugees come back, there will be a, a Palestinian majority in this country. 
And yet the two-state solution that's been accepted by the Palestinians more than 20 years ago, the Palestinians publicly, the PLO, accepted the two-state solution before the Oslo peace process. The two-state solution, which is still the, uh, the internationally uh, preferred plan, uh, divides the country, but Israel gets 78% of the country, and all the occupied territories are only 22% of historic Palestine. So when Abu Mazen went to the UN last September to ask for recognition of the state of Palestine, he wasn't asking for anything new. He was asking for the same two-state solution that the international community, including Britain, has pushed for all these years. And he was asking for 22% of historic Palestine. In other words, less than a quarter of the land. But that's too much. Um, all right, we'll skip over this one. Because, uh, and the, and the, it's, um, all right, the, the colors aren't so good because, in fact, Israel claims the entire West Bank, which is what we call Judea and Samaria, and has locked the Palestinians into these brownish areas that we call areas A and B, which make up 40% of the West Bank, and then Gaza, which is, which is kind of a cage. So in my view, this is where we're going. I think that Israel is going in the near future to annex Area C of the West Bank. Uh, the European Union put out a report a couple months ago that's available on, on the internet saying that Israel has engaged since 1967 on a process, a policy of forced expulsions of Palestinians from Area C. Now, this is what we talk about. We talk about house demolitions and expropriations of land and, and destruction of agricultural fields, the taking of water. The Palestinians uh, are two and a half million people and, uh, versus uh, in the West Bank about 250,000 Israelis, so they're 10 times the size, and they get 15% of the water. 85% of the water of the West Bank goes to Israel, either the settlements or it's pumped into Israel itself. So <clears throat> what's happened then is either the, like I said, either the Palestinians have been induced to emigrate from the country, especially the middle classes, or have been shoved into, forced into areas A and B. So that today, area C, which is all this area except for these brownish areas, and this is where these blue areas are the settlements. This is where the settlements are located, area C, 60% of the West Bank has less than 5% of the Palestinian population today. So it's almost been cleared of Palestinians. So the idea now is, okay, we will annex Area C to Israel. And there's so few Palestinians left, about 125,000 left, that we can give them Israeli citizenship. We can give them full Israeli citizenship without upsetting what we call the demographic balance. Israel could absorb those 125,000 without upsetting the demographic balance. And therefore, you can't accuse us of apartheid, 
right? Because, okay, we're going to annex this, but we're going to give the Palestinians uh, citizenship. Leaving 95, 96% of the Palestinians stuck in areas A and B. In about 70 islands on 40% of the, of the West Bank and Gaza. Okay, so who, so who cares? If they, want to, if they want to make it a state, they can have a state. If they want, whatever. They're, we're not responsible anymore. And in terms of East Jerusalem, East Jerusalem has already been annexed. So in a sense, you've got, you have really the, um, the, the, fruition, the fruition of Zionism. The idea being that we have now reclaimed, Judaized, the entire land of Israel. We've managed to shove the Palestinians into these little islands. And it's not only in the occupied territories, also inside Israel. Inside Israel, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, that we call Israeli Arabs, because we don't use the word Palestinian in Israel, are 20% of the population, and they're confined to 3.5% of the land. Inside, inside Israel. So you have area A basically inside Israel as well. It isn't only, and of course in the Negev here, there's a whole war against the Bedouin that are all being confined to townships. Right in here is the, the Bedouin community of El Arakib that's been entirely demolished more than 20 times by the Israeli army inside. In fact, Last year, three times more Palestinian homes were demolished inside Israel of Israeli citizens who are Arabs than were demolished in the occupied territories. So that, in a sense, I think Israel feels it's over. It's over. It's done. And the, and the vision, if you want to call it that, or the, the concept of what Jabotinsky, who was the founder of the Revisionist Party, what became the Likud, Begin was a, a disciple of uh, Jabotinsky, Netanyahu, and so on. The idea that he wrote in his article, The Iron Wall, that became a, a basic concept of Zionism that was adopted by Ben-Gurion as well. The idea of the Iron Wall was that we will have a military presence, a physical presence, a political presence so overwhelming and here's where despair comes in. What he said was that the Arabs will despair. And the way he put it was, they will despair of the land of Israel ever becoming Palestine. And I think Israel feels that it's reached that today. There's a level of despair among the Palestinians that basically if Israel gives them that 40%, and they have a little bit of an economy, they'll say, okay, we give up. In other words, we can't resist anymore. I don't think another intifada is possible. It's just too wrapped up. Remember, the Palestinian Authority has an army as well. So the Palestinians are talking about living under two occupations. And it's so sewn up that basically the idea is the Palestinians have become so despairing of anything else happening, that they simply want to have the semblance of a normal life, and therefore they'll accept what we, we consider an apartheid. And it's even worse than apartheid. The word we 
give to it as warehousing. But, um, okay, I think, let me just see what the next slide is. And, and all right, this is just, just with this, and of course what defines this is the root. This is the root of the wall. So Israel has put its plan down in concrete. This isn't simply some concept. Because what I Israel today um, sees the wall as the border, as the border. So in other words, there's, there's what's called cantons. There will be three cantons in the West Bank defined by the wall around areas A and B, in the south, in the center, in the north, and then Gaza. And maybe Israel will a little bit give some, give some land to the Palestinians because it's our prerogative. We'll, in order to connect a little bit the islands into these kinds of cantons. So a Palestinian area, if they want it to be a state, whatever, uh, will be these four, these four cantons. Um, without Jerusalem, without water, without territorial contiguity, uh, without control of the borders, because all the borders remain under Israeli control. So Israel really has two eastern borders. The, the wall is called by Israel our demographic border. And again, the name of the wall is the separation barrier. And then in the, uh, in the further east, along the Jordan River, that's Israel's security border with the Palestinians locked up in between. That's where we're going. I think Israel now feels that it's over. There is no source, Israel feels, of any countervailing forces. Obama's not going to object. In fact, Obama accepted the Bush, the Bush policies of saying that, yes, the wall is the basis of negotiations, not the 1967 borders. So we're away officially from the two-state concept towards a Bantustan. Europe is subservient to the United States on this issue. Europe is not going to take an independent stand, including, of course, Britain. And uh, the Palestinians can't resist. The Arab world is preoccupied with the Arab Spring and so on. And basically, Israel says it's over. There's really, you know, and we can do anything we want to do. We can demolish, we can expropriate, we can confine, we can set up an apartheid system, we can annex whatever we want, we can do, and nobody's going to say a word. I mean, here and there, people like us in a few churches and trade unions might speak out, but basically it's over. So that's really our challenge. Because, and I'll end on this, you know, whether you're coming from a faith-based direction, church or synagogue or mosque or whatever religious faith you're from, or whether you're coming from a human rights direction, the idea that in the Holy Land, no less, <laughs> on the southern border of Europe, in the light of day, occupation can prevail. An entire people could in fact be imprisoned forever. A new apartheid system can emerge in our world with the complicity of our own countries. You know, it makes hollow all those values that we, that we talk about, whether it's in church or whether it's in the political life. In other words, I think the message 
you know, human rights and international law are so important for the oppressed peoples all over the world. That's the, uh, by their fingernails, they're holding on to something that might make their lives better. If that's gone, if the message here is that a power by military force with the complicity of Europe and the United States can in fact defeat a people and imprison them permanently in violation, clear violation of international law and human rights, then, uh, then what hope is there for other peoples in less publicized parts of the world? So I think this sends a chilling message, and maybe that's part of the idea. Just like the attack on Iraq sent a chilling message to any country that, that thinks its resources belong to it rather than to, uh, rather than to the West, I think here there's a chilling message that if you resist whoever you are in the world, if you resist, you're a terrorist and, we, and zero tolerance policy and we'll do anything. And the Palestinians are the guinea pigs. The Palestinians are the exemplars of that. So I think there's a global message here that's very powerful. And, uh, and so I'm writing now about what I call global Palestine. Because in many ways, I think Palestine is a microcosm of much larger processes going on in the world. And uh, that will leave for another day, but I'll leave you with that thought. Jeff, thank you so much for that. Um, we've got about 10 minutes for questions, so if we can kind of keep questions on a sort of related theme to what Jeff's been talking about. Um, I'll take two or three at the same time, if that's okay, and I'll pass this microphone around. My problem is every answer of mine is 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Irene Sedler. I'm from the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign. I mean, the obvious question to ask after that absolutely comprehensive and absolutely overwhelming uh, presentation was given that the two-state solution is an apartheid solution, right. um, what then? And what's the alternative to despair other than, obviously, you want us to help support uh, campaign committee against house demolitions. But on a bigger scale, what are you hoping for? Okay. I'm not going to remember. Okay. All right, I can speak, yes. My question is, if a Palestinian living in Jerusalem and he, and he meets, say, a girl living in Ramallah and they, would, and they want to get married, can he bring his wife to live with him in Jerusalem? No. <laughs> but I'll, I'll explain it now. No, they he cannot. At least more time for the other... Uh, Hi, hello. Uh, Jeff, I think this is uh, full of uh, exaggerations and lies. Uh, I'm surprised that, you know, in the church and Christians, I thought Jews had sort of stopped being the scapegoats. But um, what, what Jeff here, what he said is a lot of exaggeration. A lot of the middle classes might be going, but a lot of them are Christians. Is there a church in Gaza, for instance? What's happening to the Christian, well, Christians, Christians in, in, in Egypt? 
What what is um, in in Israel itself? The Palestinians are free to express themselves in in Israel like they cannot in any of the Arab countries that are surrounding them. And the Arab longevity, the age limit, the Arabs live longer in the West Bank and Gaza than in many parts of Britain. And also for Jeff to downplay the, the, the security rule as an apartheid or separation rule, when many Jews are getting killed, if you read the Hamas charter, the Hamas charter calls directly for the killing of Jews. This is not about settlements. This is not about anything else than destruction of Israel. That's a, a perfect example of the Israeli framing that I talked about before. You start with, it's exactly it. You start with terrorism, and you start with Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East. And where do you go from there? You see, of course it's true. Of course it's true. All right. So <clears throat> let's go back to, uh, to, to the first question I think is, is important. What I'm arguing is that the two-state solution is gone. I mean, I don't pick that up, but I'll say it. <laughs> the two-state solution is gone. It's over. And I think we should stop talking about it. Because the more you talk about a solution that's irrelevant, the more you muddy the waters. It just, it just confuses things. It's over. OK. Now, where do we go from there? Now, the, one of the problems is, I think, that the one-state solution isn't necessarily the default position, because there's problems with the one-state solution. There's actually two one-state solutions. One is a, a, de a democratic state. One person, one vote. Everybody living there is a citizen, you get the vote. The problem with that is it ignores the national dimension. You do have two national groups. You have Israelis and you have Palestinians. And for both, including the Palestinians, a national identity is important. The flag, uh, your, a cultural expression, self-determination, that's, that's the essence of, of a national identity. In other words, it isn't just a collection of citizens you know, on an ethnic basis. So there's a problem with that one-state approach. The other one-state approach would be a binational state, a state of two, of two peoples. The, the, one of the problems with that is binational states don't work very well. We look at Lebanon, you look at Cyprus, you look at uh, Sri Lanka, former Yugoslavia, even Canada and Belgium are having their, their issues on much, you know, on linguistic issues. So because the essence of nationalism is self-determination, it's hard to put two nations into one state, into one state, because you don't have, and in, of course, Israel-Palestine, you don't have discrete areas. It's not like Palestinians live there, like the Scots live there, and the English live here, and the Welsh live over there, in a sense. Uh, you don't have that, because everybody, you have a million and a half Palestinian citizens of Israel, you have a half a million Israelis living in the occupied territories. So everybody's mixed up. And in addition, there's another interesting. Neither people recognizes the national existence of the other. In other words, for Israelis and Zionism forever, Zionism has always, from the first day until today, 
denied that there is a Palestinian people. We talk about Arabs in a very undifferentiated way. Rabin was very explicit uh, about not talking to the Palestinians when the Oslo peace process began because he said, if we use the word Palestinians, we're conceding that there's another people in this country that have rights of self-determination, which would prejudice the negotiations. So from the Israeli point of view, there's only one people in the land of Israel, and it's the Jews, and there's a bunch of Arabs there. I mean, we're not blind. There's a bunch of Arabs there, but they don't add up to a people, to a collectivity. But now what's happened, not only with Hamas, but it's beginning to be true, I think, of the Palestinian left, is that you're beginning to have a, a symmetry on the Palestinian side of saying there is no such thing as, as an Israeli. Zionism is a colonial movement. It has no legitimacy. There is no such thing as an Israeli people. Jews are a religious group. And therefore, there's only one people in Palestine, and that's the Palestinians. So Jews can live here as individual citizens, but not with any national rights. So the binational concept is not accepted, not only by Israelis, it's not accepted by a growing number of Palestinians. So we're in a sense, we're, 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 we're left with no two-state solution and a one-state solution that isn't even agreed upon by the peoples, not to mention the international community. I mean, for Britain to jump to a one-state solution would, you know, it's hard to see that in the foreseeable future. I'm kind of playing with another idea, which today is very abstract, I admit, and it's probably too soon because we're still stuck in the one state, two state thing. Somebody said it's like Dr. Zeus, you know, one state, two state, one state, two state. Um, but I think what we need, the approach that we need is, um, Ah, can you turn on the thing once more, or is it gone? Uh, what we need is a regional approach. In other words, Palestine, Israel is too small an area to cram all the solutions into. The, 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 the issues before the peop those two peoples are regional in, in scope. You know, if you talk about security, that's a regional issue. You talk about economic development, that's regional. It doesn't help. If there's a wonderful Palestinian-Israeli peace and that whole country's developing in a region that's poor and autocratic and unstable. That's not, you know, uneven regional development is not good anywhere in the world. Um, water, or the water in Palestine comes from Syria and Lebanon. You talk about the refugee issue. I mean, the refugees are, you know, there are many refugees in Jordan, for example, that have been there for 60 years. They have businesses, they have, their families are there. They want to be Palestinians. They even want to be citizens, but they don't want necessarily to move to Palestine. So I think the model of the European, not the Union, I mean, the Union's a little bit too much even for you guys, I think, but, but the European common market as it existed, let's say, 30 years ago, I think is a, is a good model for, in other words, you take Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. The idea being that the countries have a certain national integrity and, and so on, but the people can live and work 
throughout the region. You disconnect citizenship from territory. Um, and then I think if Palestinian refugees want to come back from Lebanon to live in the Galilee, Fadalu, you can do that. But you, you come back as Palestinian citizens, and in that way, individually, you, you come home, but you're not just like Poles that come here, don't become British. You're not threatening the integrity of Israel, whatever that means. Or if settlers want to stay in Hebron, stay in Hebron. You stay there as Israeli citizens living in Palestine. Jordan, you know what's certainly going to happen, because the weak link in this is Jordan, economically. You're going to get hundreds of thousands of Jordanians coming into Israel and Palestine to work because that's where the economy is stronger. Well, you know, again, if they come in as Jordanians and, and not as, you know, it's not an invasion, but it's like the Poles here in a sense. So, so in a sense, I think it's a good way to find the balance between the integrity of each member state and nevertheless opening the whole area up for movement and for a regional economic development. And that's a process that Europe could, in a sense, mentor, having developed the model here. You have a model of how strong economies coexist with weaker economies, bigger states with smaller states. I think there's a lot there that would really uh, begin to address some of the larger issues. So I think we have to start looking maybe at a, at a regional approach. So I don't know where to go with that. Um, but I think that that's what, what I would suggest. We're running out of time, I'm afraid. Um, could you answer, the answer was no um, to yes, the other question. So is there a slightly more extended answer than no? Or? A little, well, a little bit. I mean, yes, Israel, um, first of all, Palestinians uh, in the occupied territories aren't allowed to come into Israel at all unless they have a permit, and that's very rare. Uh, and it's only a permit for a certain number of hours and so on. But Israel passed a law a couple of years ago on basis, based on regulations that were longer, uh, saying, and this is a, an absolutely fundamental violation of, of human rights. And that is that an Israeli, the, the way it was phrased, because you, you don't want to, right? We're, like this fellow says here, we're the only democracy in the Middle East, so you don't want to, you have to protect that image. So you can't say, Palestinians or Arabs, da, 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 da. you have to make it generalized. So the, the law is Israeli citizens who marry a, someone from an enemy state, meaning an Arab, any Arab country, cannot bring their spouse to live with them in Israel or their children. In other words, as in now, that's obviously geared to the Palestinians. I mean, you don't have that many Jews that go out and marry people from the West Bank or Jordan or whatever, because Palestinians, you know, in Arab society, you often marry cousins. You marry within the extended family, so, uh, which Israel sees as a plot. You know, Israel sees Palestinian marriage patterns as a way to get around the law, the, 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 to get around the right of return, that you're doing the right of return by by strategically marrying people from the West Bank and Jordan and bringing them in, and da, da, da. It's, it's a whole weird thing. So the law is then that if I'm an Israeli citizen, and especially if I'm Palestinian, of course, and I marry someone from the West Bank, 
uh, either we have to live separately or I have to go there to live. I have to leave the country. I cannot bring my spouse to live with me in Israel. So you go reconcile that with being a democratic state. Jeff, um, time is really slipping away. So a final question. Could you say in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah. Um, why is rebuilding Beit Arabiya so important if this is what's going on? Okay. 30 seconds before that. Okay, yeah. I just wanted... Because like herding sheep. All right. I did want to... Because I, I want to leave you a little bit with it. Talking about the solutions. One state, two states, ten states, confederate. What, 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 what we're arguing is that we don't have a solution. First of all, we don't have a solution. Second of all, it's the Palestinians' prerogative to tell us what the solution is. I'm not a Palestinian. I can't say, I can give my opinion, but I can't, I have no right to say this is, you know, I, uh, the Palestinians have to do that. But what I can, what I try to do at least is to say, what are the essential elements of any peace? What I would argue is that if all of these elements are present, a lot of, there's a lot of alternatives. Two states, one state, different kinds of one state, federation. If any one of these is missing, I don't care how good it looks on paper, it's not going to work. So these are the essential elements to any piece. Just really quick, there has to be a national expression for both peoples. I've gotten a lot of criticism about that, especially from Palestinians that say, yeah, but the Israelis aren't the nation, and da, 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 but I'm not going to get into that now. I think there are two peoples living in that country. There has to be economic viability, which means you can't have apartheid. There has to be conformity with human rights, international law, and UN resolutions. Um, you have to deal with the refugee issue straight on, and it's not only a technical resolution of it, but Israel has to also acknowledge what it's done. The acknowledgement is tremendously important. I was, uh, I, two years ago, I was in China. They're still living the Japanese occupation. Japan has, I think the, today, the second or third largest economy in the world. I think it's just been eclipsed by China. They're dying to be in the Security Council. China says to Japan, until you acknowledge what you did in World War II, forget it. You'll never get into the Security Council. So this acknowledgement, this, this um, symbolic uh, element is, is crucial to healing and to closure. And I think that's even more important than, than actually uh, uh, whatever the technical issue is of how many refugees come back and this and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there has to be, I think, the regional approach I talked about. And, of course, security of everybody. Security uh, issues have to be addressed. I think these are the essential elements of any peace. So we have the approach. We have the elements. How exactly it's going to be put together, I think, is, is the open question. So to go back to what I said in the very beginning. Each demolition is a microcosm of the wider, not only the wider conflict, in many ways the global conflict. Um, you know, one of the real issues today, and you see it certainly in London, is the right to locality. The fact that people, 
millions and millions of people are forced out of their countries and out of their localities and their farms and their cities because of economic, political, and other kinds of... Uh, of so, so in a sense, the Palestinian refugee issue is simply one of the most visible of global... Uh, there's all kinds of global elements in this conflict. The militarism, neocolonialism, all kinds of things that, that I think should be brought out. And so in that sense, Salim and Arabia's house it almost becomes a microcosm for much... For, for the whole conflict and beyond. So I think, in a sense, uh, Salim and Arabia really represent... I think the Palestinians are emblematic. I think one reason why people all over the world look at, to the Palestinians as the, as the, as the emblems of, uh, of resistance is because they're right on the front lines, in a sense, uh, and so, and so I think they become emblematic for peoples all over the world. I think the Palestinian issue has become one of the two or three major global issues of the day. Um, so the importance of Beit Arabia is not only the importance to the family itself, obviously, but its symbolic importance. We have to rebuild it, and we'll keep rebuilding it. As a political act of resistance, until we prevail. And once we prevail, I think we've gone a long way towards prevailing over the occupation. I don't mean, and this addresses another part of your question, I don't mean to, to make us defeatist. I'm not saying, I think Israel, I'm trying to present the way Israel sees this. But I think this conflict is unsustainable. I don't believe injustice will win. Uh, and uh, partly because injustice can never be normalized. It can never be uh, routinized. It can never be accepted by the oppressed people, no matter how much in despair they become. Um, and so at some point it has to break out again, and, and the, the struggle and the resistance continues. So that I think the, the greatest ally of the Palestinians is us, civil society. The governments, as we know, will not do the right thing, period, <laughs> on any issue. They won't. And only when they're pushed by the people will they do anything uh, constructive, in a sense. I don't think government, I think governments see themselves as in the business of conflict management, not conflict resolution. They will not bite the bullet. So unless we, as civil society, build a fire under them, and you know, this whole, there's this famous saying that when the leaders, when the people lead, the leaders follow. Governments do not lead. Governments follow civil society. They don't admit it. They don't acknowledge us. We feel powerless. We feel marginalized. We don't think we have an influence. But in the end, we're the ones that, that, that decide the direction of governments. So that as, and I think civil society has really, like I said, taken this on very strongly. I think uh, public consciousness and awareness is raising. Churches are certainly speaking out. Not just Amos Trust that's always been there, but uh, a lot of the mainstream churches all over the world, even the evangelicals today. I was just at a conference uh, in Bethlehem last month called Christ at the Checkpoints. Evangelicals, and a lot of students coming together to talk about the occupation. So 
you know, across the board, I think, this has really become the issue, and that's where I think the hope of the Palestinians lies. The fact that the people won't let them down, and eventually the people will, the pressures of the people will trickle up to the governments, and eventually the governments might do the right thing.